Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and today's guest is Christine Barberich, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of the media company Refinery29. Refinery29 has been expanding in amazing ways the past few years, and I was really glad I had the chance to sit down and talk with her. We had an awesome conversation, so let's get into it. So now that we've just been having a natural conversation, now that we're recording, it'll completely be wooden now, (laughs) now that we know. Yes. No. Oh, man. I'm not sure. Where'd you grow up? I grew up um, in Bayport on Long Island. It's a little town on the South Shore, and um, it was very different, I think, from what people traditionally think about Long Island. Right. There's a lot of stereotypes connected to Long Island, and that really wasn't my experience growing up. Did you ever see the Ken Marino movie Diggers? About clam diggers? Oh, I thought you said Dickers. Dickers, (laughs) yeah. I'm like, I actually didn't see that movie, Diggers. Um, Diggers? uh, No, I didn't see that one either, though. It's really cool. It's about like, it's about his, because he grew up in the same neighborhood. You know, Ken Marino from... I guess, what would you know him from? Like, you know, he was in The State. He was in, he's been in a bunch of movies. Yes. Yeah. Love The State. Yeah. I so, can't believe you're referencing The State. Oh, that was like my favorite show growing up. Do you up. remember that that show used to be on at like midnight? No. It was on at midnight. Weren't they Canadian? Were they Canadian? No, that's Kids in the Hall. No, no, no. I know Kids in the Hall were Canadian too. The State. But who was this? Who was this? The lone woman. The lone Carrie woman Kinney. in The State. She, and then she, wait, don't, don't um, jump, jump, don't jump <laughs> ahead. And then she had a band called Cake. Cake. Do you remember? No, it was called Cake Like. All right. Yes. You just one up me. But it was Cake Like. And I used yeah. to go and see them in the 90s all the yeah. time. Hell yeah. Yes. Similarly at Brownies. Do you remember at Brownies? Brownies? Yeah, I do. But I know what you mean, like that stereotype of like what people think Long Island is. Like kind of well, like, like a juiced up kind of like like a guy in a tank top. And a, and a really thick mm-hmm. Long Island accent. Yeah. Whenever I tell people I'm from Long Island, they're like, oh, Long Island. And I'm yeah. like, you know, actually nobody ever says that. Well, what was your experience like growing up in, in what was it, Bayport? It was, in, yeah, it's what, Bayport. What was your experience like there? Um, well, um, I lived with my grandparents mm-hmm. and my parents and my sister. We had an apartment over my over our house. And um, my mom still lives in the same house. But my grandparents, who um, were first-generation or not first generation, but their parents came over from Italy. My grandmother was born in in New York in the Bronx, but um, so they live with us. And, you know, I grew up, you know, with them taking care of us on the weekends and after school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really, um, it was very sort of family oriented. And my, my mom's parents lived, you know, 20 minutes away. So we spent a lot of time with our grandparents. And it was by the beach, so, you know, we spent a lot of times... A lot of, you know, our summers just like in the car with my mom going to the beach, listening to the Carpenters. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it was a lot of Carpenters, a lot of Barry Manilow um, and going crabbing and clamming yeah. with my dad at night. Yeah. And just riding our bikes until we could hear our moms calling us home. Just like nice and easy. Would you consider that like a pretty ideal way to grow up? It was really beautiful. But I, you know, having, you know, gone to college I felt really really isolated in a lot of ways like I didn't know um I went to a small high school and you know I never met a Jewish person until I actually went to college right I didn't I felt I didn't realize how kind of sheltered and insulated I was until I actually got out into the world and 
that I don't think is is particularly great, mm. but I think that that's why I always sort of sought refuge in books and magazines and films and television. When I you were a child, really, when you were yeah. growing up? Yeah, because I felt really hungry, you know. There was very limited, you know, stimulating conversation. You know, my parents had regular jobs. Um, yeah. You know, we didn't we didn't take glamorous vacations or do, you know, sort of like cultural road trips, you know, right. into the city to go, you know, to the museums. Um, but I, you ha- you wanted more. I did. I where, was... I where, was I was pretty hungry. Where do you think that desire came from? I have no idea. Yeah. My mom asked me that all the time. <laughs> She's like, where did you come from? My sister says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, was there somebody who was turning you on to things? Like, how were you kind of discovering things at that time? Um, this is kind of a pathetic story, but it's really funny, and it's very it's very character-defining. But I remember... I've told the story a few times in, in, in different variations, but... Mm-hmm. I can remember my mom letting me stay up to watch Charlie's Angels. And um, it was like my life revolved around Charlie's Angels, thinking about like whether or not they were going to let me stay up the next week to watch it. And I just lived for Jacqueline Smith. Really? Played Kelly Garrett, yes. I don't know why, but just really identified with her. And there was something about them um, as these young, powerful women that wore pants mm-hmm. and didn't have husbands and were just like badasses and like wielding weapons and like, you know, karate kicking, like, you know, mm-hmm. all of these, you know, horrible criminals. And I just didn't know any women like that. And I used to cry to my sister and my mother that I wanted Jacqueline Smith to be my mom and my mom. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like if I had grown up with her, you know, sort of <laughs> mentoring me, yeah. I was really going to turn out okay. And, um, of course, my mom thought it was hilarious and probably found it a little bit sad, too. But um, there was just something very kind of life-defining about that. And I think that there is a lot of connections back to that that desire to identify with a woman like her um, that wasn't dictated by a traditional a, di- a traditional sort of female experience at right. that time in the, in the mid to late 70s. What kind of kid were you growing up? I was very ambitious. Um, my my father lost his job. I can remember there was a lot of stress and anxiety in our house around money and security. And my sister and I both, you know, talk about that now. It sort of created a real fear in us about like not having, you know, a steady paycheck or you know feeling like we have financial security mm-hmm. um, because my father, you know, very unexpectedly lost his job when I was about three. And I still have really profound memories of that time and just my parents fighting and my mom having to go back to work, you know. And so she put me in nursery school down the block from this um, law firm that she um, went to be a full-time secretary in. And she would, you know, we would drive together every day and she would drop me off. I mean, this is like I'm three and a half or four years old, um, not ready for nursery school yet and they didn't really have you know daycare in those days and um or at least you know where we lived everybody sort of like you know you'd family take care of you know small children and um she would drop me off for a full day and um and it really like it really butches you up really really quickly I remember um I remember just like being like you know despondent and, and probably really depressed for like the first month that she took me and it was really just traumatizing you know just being left with these people I didn't know and um 
my grandparents, I don't believe, were living with us yet. Um, were there other kids there? Oh, yeah, there was oh, tons okay. of other kids yeah. there. But um, but it was just, but I feel like now in retrospect, that was just such a an important time because I really feel like I, I, I just um, found my confidence. I found my voice. I was like, you know, I created all these little groups, you know, in, in nursery school for that year. And I, you know, was constantly spending time with teachers and talking with them and having like, I couldn't read, but I was like, you know, creating these reading clubs and telling stories. And, and it's just, it was, it became like this magical world that yeah. I really, you know, I really came alive in. And, um, and I think that when I went home, it was sort of not the same because I had no power at home. In nursery school, I had a lot of power. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had a lot of charisma. And then you go home and you're like the youngest and, you know. Are you the youngest child? I'm the youngest. I was, yeah, I'm still the youngest. Um, but you go home and, you know, nobody gives a shit what you think right. or what you want for dinner. They're just, you know, you just have to go with the flow. So did that sentiment kind of like roll on throughout, you know, your, your early school life? It did. I've always had a, a real, um, a real resistance to not just people trying to control me, but feeling restricted, feeling repressed, feeling, and not really understanding the reasons why. There, I think that when people try to impose rules or or restrictions on you specifically on me i just felt really really uncomfortable and um and just wanted to know why you know i wanted to understand why and what the reasoning was and what the logic was and and if it didn't add up or i wasn't you know sort of feeling like i understood um it just would make me really deeply unhappy and um and resistant so what would you do to combat that um, it really sort of swung at both ends of the spectrum. You know, sometimes I would have temper tantrums and, you know, really be, you know, sort of problematic in class or with my parents and just like, you know, having like real physical outbursts. And then other times I would just kind of, you know, retreat within myself and, mm -hmm. you know, go read in the closet because I didn't have any space of my own. So I would bring like a little light into the, into my, the closet I shared with my sister and just go in there and, and read until the oxygen was gone. <laughs> do you remember, I mean, do you remember what the, what like the, the first books that really spoke to you? Oh my gosh. Oh my God. You mean like the really early ones, like Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom and, and, um, and Shel Silverstein. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of, and then, you know, of course, you know, Little House on the Prairie, all of those. Um, there's so many, but I think that, I don't know. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to yeah, think yeah. if there's like a real signature one, because I'm sure that there is. There was a book on gnomes that I still have. I still have the original one. My mom gave it to me when I was eight. And um, it's not David the gnome, is it? No, okay. it's just called gnomes. And um, it's from the late 60s, early 70s. But the illustrations are so magnificent and so fantastical. And that book was I brought it everywhere with me. It's yeah. huge. It's a really big picture book. Um, but it actually sort of told um, in, in real sort of colorful detail, like, you know, how gnomes live and <laughs> what their habits are and what different kinds of breeds of gnomes and, you know, yeah. all, and, and how you can kind of like spot them. And it was just really, it was, it was just, I think there was something that kind of drew me out of my every, my everyday existence, mm -hmm. something like that as an example. 
that just made me feel much more at home in myself. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do to kind of get out of where you were? I don't think early on I did. I don't know that I thought it was possible mm -hmm. because I didn't know anybody that, that, that could do it or that was doing it or had done it. Um, my grandmother couldn't drive, you know, she, I, I don't even think she graduated from high school. Nobody in my family had gone to college. I was the first person to go to college and graduate. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of real sort of really high expectations. I mean, I think that my parents would have been thrilled if I just, you know, got a great, you know, secure job doing something, you know, that wasn't... In the town, in your town? Nearby, yeah. you know, maybe I would, you know, maybe I would trade up a little bit, you know, and, and you know, maybe I'd work in a bank or, right. <laughs> or, or something like that. But I... I think that I just, I think I knew in my heart, telling stories, being um, a part of other people telling stories was a really, um, a really important part of just my my psyche, my my desires. You know, everything, everything I ever wanted to do or everything I enjoyed doing was always somehow related to storytelling. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you realized that that was the path you wanted to follow? I did. I my mom used to pick up magazines for me and old books at um, the bookstore wherever she used to get them. I don't know, and I would cut them out, cut them to pieces, and make my own magazines out mm -hmm. of them. And this was when I was, you know, I don't know, ten, eleven, really yeah. young. And I would make my own magazines with my own headlines, and um, and started writing, you know, my own stories and. And also, that was when I first started reading Seventeen, and you know, maybe a few years later, and that magazine changed my life. How so? It was, you know, Whitney Houston was on the cover. You know, it was like I remember there were models that in that magazine that looked different for me and everyone I went to high school with. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to a pretty, you know, upper middle class um, school where everybody had, you know. Everybody had, you know, really nice Benetton clothes and everyone had a great car to drive. And, you know, I didn't really come from that background. You know, I'm really grateful to my mom because, you know, we didn't have a lot, but she always made sure if there was something special that I wanted that I felt like was, you know, essential to mm -hmm. expressing myself, whether it was, you know, a tonsurton sweatshirt or a pair of like, you know, sneakers, you know, she made sure I had it. So I always had what I really needed, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, but it was kind of surreal just being in a, in a, in a, in a, in a world like that where, you know, everybody had all of this stuff and all of these opportunities and really didn't seem to be doing very much with it. Were there people that you kind of looked up to? I mean, writers probably, I mean, yeah. definitely magazine editors. I mean, I can remember, um, Amy Levin Cooper, who was the editor in chief of Mademoiselle. I, you know, we didn't have the internet or, you know, social media in those days, but I stalked her in any way that I could stalk her. And I remember going for my first interview at Connie Nast. I started sending resumes out when I was probably a sophomore in college, and, yeah. you know, and getting internships in, you know, the late eighties, early nineties wasn't, wasn't as common as it is now. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just go and, and sign up for an internship or, you know, apply. They just weren't available as 
um, as readily as they are now. And add to that, you know, when I had breaks from college, I had to work, you know, to make money in order to, you know, cover my spending money and books and any incidentals that I had, um, in addition to, you know, all of our university fees. But, um, but I stalked her and I remember going, um, to Condé Nast and, and taking a typing test, which is really dating myself. But, you know, in those days, in order to be an assistant as a woman, it's so sexist. I don't know. I have no idea if they made men actually take typing tests, but I never, and the four or five times I went in there to interview, um, I had to take a typing test. They I never sit saw. sit you in a room. And they sit you in a room with like two, or they did in, the, in those days, they sit you in a room with like two other young women about my age and you would take a typing test and they would just time you. It was yeah. so, it was <laughs> so stressful. Yeah, I can imagine. I know, it was really stressful. And like, you know, I guess that that was, you know, a, a pretty important indicator as to whether or not you had a future in publishing, um, <laughs> which is quite depressing. Yeah. But, um, but I was optimistic and I prevailed and I nailed that typing test. Hell yeah. I did. All right. Um, but I saw Amy Levin Cooper coming in um, to the lobby when I was leaving and I just, it was kind of an omen. I needed to see her. I needed to see that she was real and I needed to see that, you know, I could be that and I could do that. I couldn't rock that haircut that she had, mm-hmm. but. Um, Which was, I don't She was like, you know, she predated Anna Wintour with that. With that really, you know, slick, very precise bob, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. bangs and a bob. And she was married to the very famous um, late editor of GQ, Art Cooper. And they were just, you know, in, in publishing, they were like the dynamic duo. So like publishing magazines, like that was your world. That was kind of just, was that everything to you at, at that time? It really was because it was... You know, again, this is like pre-internet, you know, and pre-social media. It was, and I'm sure that there's so many other people in, in our world that probably could relate to that. But magazines were everything to me: Spin and Rolling Stone oh and yeah. details, the first details and paper and, um, you know, Ms. Magazine. There was just so many of them that I just that was literally my sanctuary, and it was where I found community and mm-hmm. and really challenged myself in terms of you know my ideals and things that I was passionate about and things that, you know, I didn't really know enough about. And um, it's funny, just to loop back to Amy Levin Cooper, but many years later, um, a friend introduced me to her and I wrote her a long letter in an email and I told her how much she meant to me and how important she was to me. And she just couldn't believe it. And she invited me over to her house to look through all of her early mademoiselles. And... um, We didn't go to her house um, because, I can't remember why we didn't go to her house, but we went out to dinner and we talked about it and she just was so dumbfounded that I would be that, you know, I would know that much about her and about the work that she did and, you know, this really incredibly pioneering material that she brought to, you know, young women's magazines at that time. Mm -hmm. It was kind of amazing. That's awesome. I I completely understand that feeling. When you meet a hero, it's like really... And it's always a great, you know, a profound disappointment when they turn out to be assholes or, happens, or disinterested yeah. or dispassionate. And um, and that's always a bummer. But she was really, she was so smart and, and savvy and, and curious. And um, I, she still had so much of that spark and that passion that, you know, I felt like, you know, I wanted to experience myself. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, when I was growing up and like you would get that, that magazine would come in the mail and you would just 
grab it and I just you go somewhere and just read it cover to cover, you know, and miss that feeling a lot actually. Do you, do you mean, did you, you know? ever get, what was your magazine when you were growing up? I mean, we had Ranger Rick. Do you remember Ranger <laughs> I, I Rick? I do remember Ranger Rick. Yeah, yeah. Ranger Rick was important. I Highlights. I mean, that was like a big deal when those came in the mail. I guess I, my favorite was Spin. And, and um, I, w- I remember for some reason, I don't even know how I got turned on to it, but I remember like the, f- the reading like the second issue ever of Juxtapose magazine. Mm-hmm. You know that art magazine? No, I don't it, know it. It's, it's still in existence. It still exists. But like that stuff just like blew my mind. You know, that and spin and maximum rock and roll and, you know, like smaller zines, stuff like that. But did you ever read Might or Spy or any of like this? Yes, Spy was amazing. Spy is like what? Like the precursor to like the Gawker style of writing a little bit? It was. I mean, that was Graydon and um, Kurt Anderson, right? Yeah. Was it Kurt Anderson? Yeah. Um, That magazine was really, really incredible. but that was a really good time for publishing because I think there that was when sort of like the first, you know, evidence of, of you know, really strong, independent thinking, you mm-hmm. know, finding these niche communities around these like, you know, sort of counterculture ideas yeah. was happening. Not that it wasn't happening before that. No. Obviously there were, you know, magazines like Cream and yeah. all these, There's all know, those great underground like newspapers and stuff totally. in the 60s and 70s. But yeah. there just seemed to be more of them and they were more readily available and they made you feel like you could make one too. That yeah. you could do this. Yeah. I, uh, I remember, I worked at Nylon for a while and I remember... Um, someone telling me that the the magazine that they had made before that, like they did this interview with Brian Ferry and the interview was really bad. So they just did the entire interview in wingdings font. (laughs) And I'm like, that's fucking hilarious and amazing. But like, also like, I feel like there was like much more like, there was a lot more like budgets for people to take chances on certain things in print. You know, you look at the, even old like skate mags that I used to um, read and stuff. You'd look at the advertisements in the, skate magazines and like Mm -hmm. the budgets they must have had for those things are crazy because they can't track they can't track the traffic or the return on investment yeah it's like it's just basically you find out like six months later how many how many magazines you sold in the newsstand and you're like well that was a bomb yeah or that was like a that was a win oh also big brother big brother was a great magazine too that was kind of the the precursor to jackass that was all those guys that was their magazine that they all kind of met at before jackass not really in my genre but right. you know but but i can appreciate <laughs> you it you mean you weren't a 13 year old boy in new jersey <laughs> just like skateboarding and eating candy all day i could have been <laughs> um so when you went to college though was that kind of a big deal since so you were the first person from your family to do that it was a really big deal and let me tell you i like squeezed every ounce of opportunity out of it i had a double major in visual arts and journalism and mm-hmm. I stayed up summers to graduate on time because I couldn't extend my time there. And I just, you know, I started sending out resumes, as I said, and literally like two months after I graduated, I moved to Manhattan with three other girls, got my first job. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a temp job basically at the New Yorker. And I took it anyway because it was the New Yorker. Yeah. So you just had like a laser focus. You're just like, I got to get through this to get to this. Did you kind of see it all like laid out for you? Did it make sense to you in your head of like how to do it? It did. I mean, I just knew publishing and media was my path. And I, there were, you know, a, a very short list of publishing companies that I really wanted to work for, that I really felt like I could you know, get a solid foundation training in. And there were, you know, 
when you start to really narrow it down, it's like then there was like a handful of editors that I really wanted to work for. Right. And, um, you know, The New Yorker was so, you know, so much a dream at that point. But, you know, basically, you know, it's it was pretty easy in those days to, you know, as long as you sent a really great um, coherent, you mm-hmm. know, well-written cover letter that wasn't, you know, super, um, super stocky. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd stocky get a meaning like, like I'm stalking you or stocky, like this is like stocky, a stock like answer. Like a stock letter. Okay, yeah. yeah. There was yeah, yeah. a lot of, yeah, a lot of my friends, I would have to help them with their cover letters <laughs> just to kind of give them a little bit more pizzazz and personality because people really do respond to that, especially in this do. particular, you know, line of work. I think that, you know, editors that cared were really looking for something that told them that this was a person of merit or had something to say or to offer. So um, when the New Yorker, when I got the letter or the call from the New Yorker, I went in and it was basically to fill in for someone who was on maternity leave in basically an assistant position, Mm -hmm. secretarial position. And I took it knowing that, you know, against my good judgment and not thinking about what my parents would have said was that there was really no guarantee at the end of the three months that I was going to have, I was going to be gainfully employed. So I took it and, um, and it's a good thing I did because the president of the New Yorker at the time, Steve Florio, who since passed away, um, he, at the time, of course, unbeknownst to me, I was, I was, Nobody and knew nothing mm-hmm. at that time, but he was being groomed um, to be the CEO of Condé Nast, and he needed a personal assistant to help him with this very covert transition that was happening. So he knew I was, he knew I didn't have a permanent job, and he asked me if I was interested in being his assistant. So he had a secretary, and and he kind of outlined what the responsibilities were, and it. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. It was sidelining, you know, my my hopes of getting an editorial job. Is, the, really is that what you were working towards? That's what you wanted? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to become an editor more than I wanted to become a writer. Mm-hmm. Why is that, do you think? I just think that there's such a an intimacy between that relationship and there is such a, 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 a deep responsibility in the with the, with an editor in helping the writer to say what it is they really, really want to say in the way that they want to say it and not getting in the way of that. You're really there to help facilitate and to clear away any of the any of the debris or the clutter or the distractions, you know, and help them to sort of, you know, have this, you know, have this moment, you know, and and express something that, you know, is going to really impact people. And that really spoke to you. I love that process. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't do it, um, often at all anymore, even though I am a, an editor in chief, I don't do it anymore because I'm so distanced from the production of the content, but I really miss it. I found it deeply, deeply satisfying and rewarding. And I can remember, um, David Granger. Thank you. Here's the other he told a story <laughs> once, um, I read in an article about him when I was in my twenties that, and this is when he used to, and, and I'm sure that there are some editors that still actually get, um, you know, first drafts from writers that, you know, are, 
is it it's the word ludite you know when you don't um, oh when you don't like understand technology exactly and stuff, like yeah. they just want to they fax through their um <laughs> their their first drafts and and there was a a writer, I can't remember who he had been working with, but I bet you if he heard me say this, he would remember um, making this comment. But he would literally wait, you know, at, you know, until midnight. He wouldn't leave his office while the, you know, that onion skin paper was coming off of the fax machine because yeah. and he was reading it as it was coming out, and just felt such a, such a, a commitment to being there alongside this writer as he was like submitting the story and just feeling so privileged to be you know that the shepherd of that of that work mm-hmm. and and I just really identify with that I really I felt that way many many times working with writers and seeing them you know seeing them not just come into their own but have that brilliant realization that they they have something important to say and that there is real purpose to the work that they're doing um so I worked with Steve Florio in this crazy um, celebrity assistant capacity for probably some of the best years at Connie Nast. The it was two and a half years, and then I he finally released me of mm-hmm. my responsibility, and um, and I got my first job in editorial at Gourmet Magazine. That's cool. Yeah. And then so you proceeded to just uh, were you bouncing around at all these different places for a while? No, I stayed at Gourmet for almost five years. And, um, and I really, that was, that was my J school in a lot of ways, because there were some of the most incredibly gifted editors that had been there for years and years and years. And it was sort of, you know, coined as this very old stodgy magazine. But I actually really appreciated that because the editors there worked with some of the best writers in the industry. And I think a lot of people that are in the food and, and sort of lifestyle space, you know, kind of, um, you know, wax romantic about, you know, that magazine in that time because it was so special and so rich and, and really, really insanely indulgent. <laughs> um, but I would literally, I was like David Granger. I would, they, you know, they had hard copies of every stage of every edit of a, of a feature with all of the, the editors, um, editing marks in the margins and through the, and through, you know, in the double spacing and I would stay really late and pick out stories and magazines that I loved and I would find the files and I would literally read every version of the story until it got published just seeing how how the sausage got made just to see how the sausage got made and and, you love that and you could read all the comments between the writers and the editors and the margins and it was really I just couldn't get enough of it it was really fun what did you take away from that time I mean, one of the biggest lessons that I learned as an editor when I first started editing, when I, they first actually gave me copy to edit and, you know, put, you know, or, you know, entrusted me with some great writers mm-hmm. um, like Jane and Michael Stern. Um, and I, I remember having my first feature and I edited it and I brought it to Elaine Richard, who was the senior features editor at the time. And she'd been there for many, many years. And... I handed it in, left it on her desk, and I was, you know, we had a schedule, usually 24 hours later, they needed time to actually review your edit, and then you'd sit down with them, and you'd go through all your edits with them, you know, line by line, Mm -hmm. and um, she called me into her office, and she handed me the folder, and she wanted to go through it, and she's like, she gave me a red pen, and she's like, I want you to take me through every mark, every change you made, and I want you to tell me um, if you're making it 
different or you're making it better. And I didn't know what she meant. And I was just like, what do you mean? And she's like, just, she's like, let's just go through it. And she wasn't, she didn't say it in a judgy way. Mm -hmm. She just wanted me to have the realization on my own if my edits were my ego, if I just wanted to, you know, insert myself into the story or if I really was genuinely making, with every edit, I was making it better. And when we went through the whole piece, you know, we removed at least three quarters of my edits. And that was single-handedly one of the greatest lessons that I ever had. And I've passed it on to so many editors that Mm -hmm. I've trained. And it really helps you to have perspective about how, you know, what role you're playing in in this writer's life and in this piece. And you cannot get in the way of that. You have to be, you know, you have to be a guide. You have to be a companion. But you cannot sort of, you know, you can't steal the spotlight in any way and you can't manipulate what it is they're trying to say right during that time period was there ever was there ever a point where you felt lost where you yes where you kind of didn't know what you wanted to do yeah there's um he wouldn't mind me telling the story (laughs) i've told it before but phil toledano who's a, a really incredible photographer he was um we were dating at the time he was uh he was an art director at j walter thompson i think and um and he really wanted to be a photographer, and I really wanted to be an editor, but not within the confines of a place like um, Condé Nast, which, excellent company, amazing legacy, but there's just so many rules and, and restrictions, and I just felt like I, I stopped growing at a certain point, and I just couldn't express myself, and there was a lot of, I couldn't take risks at all, and that's just not in my nature, and I remember putting my head down on my desk and I was on the phone with him and I just started crying and I was like I I, I just felt like I was dying inside and he's like I know he didn't start crying too but he just he was the only person that could really I could relate to because he was kind of on the same path and um and I just remember that moment and realizing that I was going to have to pay attention to what opportunities were coming my way because I was I I needed to move on and then I was writing a story for Gourmet out in Arizona and I met um, John McDonald who at the time owned the Merck Bar in New York which is a great bar and he owned the same version of it in Phoenix and he gave me a lot of recommendations because his family was from Phoenix on some restaurants he wanted me to try and he was like you know I want to launch this magazine called City Um, you know would you want to help me and I he explained to me what he wanted to do in very sort of broad terms and said, you know, you could be the, you'll you'll be the editor and you'll really dictate. And he wanted it, he just wanted it to be, you know, centered around architecture and design and fashion and, and, and style. Mm -hmm. And I, I just said, yes, I'll do it, you know, with no contract, with no, I just said I would do it. And I resigned and I just told John that I would do it for six months. You know, I said, let's do it on a six month you know, trial period to make sure that, you know, I can make sure that you're not insane right. and irresponsible. Insane in the bad ways. Insane in the bad ways. Like, you're not going to get paid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm going to show up one day and the locks are going to be changed and, right. I, and I won't know what's going on. So, and it ended up being one of the most important um, risks I ever took. Mm-hmm. And I'm still grateful to him and, and I still love seeing him in his restaurants. He owns many restaurants now and he's very successful in um in the hospitality space but you know that was 
I found my voice. I found my, I found my confidence and my courage that I could actually make a magazine. I could hire people. I could train them. I could collaborate with great people like Fabrice Ferrer, who's our creative director, who I actually convinced to leave GQ at the time to come and be the creative director there. And um, I worked with some amazing, amazing people. Um, most importantly, Piera Gilardi, who... Um, I brought on as an intern. She came, I think she was a sophomore when she started at NYU. And she is, we call each other our work wives, but she's mm-hmm. our executive creative director of Finery29 now. So I'm, I'm really interested. I'm sure you've told it a million times, and I'm sorry if I'm making you tell it again. But what, so what was the transition to being like, I want to start my own company? Well, starting um, City was really like starting our own company, you know, Mm -hmm. John really involved us in, in all of the big decisions and, um, you know, put us completely in charge of the budget. And, um, I mean, I think that was really, I can't speak for her, but I think that's really where Pierre found her creative voice too. She became the photo director there and, um, the magazine got nominated for many ASMEs. We got nominated for general excellence. Um, we also got nominated for best photography and we won. Mm -hmm. And that was really so much of her doing. And the fact that, you know, she was, had a lot of freedom to, to sort of go with her gut and, and work with people that she really felt had merit that maybe weren't getting recognized for that at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think the two of us both had that experience there and we knew that we, we knew we had a great collaborative chemistry. So years later, um, I mean, I left City probably after about four and a half years, and I did some freelancing. Um, I wrote a, a, a design book, an interior design book for Pottery Barn, of mm-hmm. funny of all things, and, um, and did some freelancing for the New York Times and, and um, a bunch of other magazines. But I... Pierre came to me and she said, you know, my boyfriend at the time was Philip Von Boreas, who's our co-CEO and co-founder. Um, he wants to start a digital media company, you know, centered around fashion and shopping. He, none of, he and none of his partners have any experience in, in, in the field, but they're looking for a fourth partner. Would you want to work with him? And I said, well, I'll meet with them. And we met at the at the Merck Bar, funny enough. We mm-hmm. had margaritas. And this is 2000... I think it was the end of 2004. Um, Remember, this is a really interesting time, you know, where the internet is being born, essentially. I mean, there was Net-A-Porter. Facebook had just launched. Twitter wasn't around yet. Um, You know, blogs were just emerging, and people were kind of understanding what they were, but, you know, no department stores had had websites. There was still a lot of skepticism as to whether or not it was even going to be important or be around in five years. But I was really interested in the, in the, the medium. I guess I call it a medium because it's just there was such malleability with it. It was so flexible, and there was so much, un there was so much unknown about it, and it was really interesting to me. So when I met with Justin and Philip and Jonathan um, at the time, Jonathan's no longer with the company, but he was an early co-founder. I just really liked them. I thought they were really smart. Um, they knew, we, I think we had a really interesting um, complementary skill set and sort of awareness and and sort of view of the world and, and the industries. And 
and they were really optimistic. And I'm a sucker for <laughs> enthusiasm and optimism. Yeah. And, you know, Philip has a real, a tireless, um, a tireless ambition. He is, he is one of the most relentlessly ambitious people I've ever met. Justin is too in a different way, but um, he really, he really knows how to push a, a group forward. He really knows how to drive a mission, and um, and he's you know he's really he and I share um, this. It's a blessing and a curse, but nothing is ever good enough. You know, it's yeah. sort of like these unrealistic, not unrealistic, but, you know, standards are, we're constantly aware of those standards and, and making sure that we not only meet them, but we exceed them. And I think that that's been a huge part of our success. Well, well what did you, uh, what did you, in those early, those early months, what did you want to bring to the experience? What, how did you want to make it stand out? Like, how did you want to like, you know, get your voice you know, like, you know, because this is like an opportunity, right, where you can like shape something from the beginning. Yes. I'm sure City was very similar to that. But See, everything that you're saying right now is the reasons why I've taken jobs. <laughs> when people come to me and they say, I really want you to help us find the voice, right. you know, and find the, the point of view or, you know, find the audience. How do we actually sort of, you know, create, you know, draw that line? Just that experience or like the concept I of I can't that. resist it. It's like, especially if it's around material, um, people and, you know, uh, an area of, of interest that just interests me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really, really interested in what was happening in retail and fashion at that time. You know, that was a really exciting time in, um, with in independent shopping. You know, there were all these really incredible boutiques that were opening up in Nolita and in Soho and, um, and you know, in the East Village. And they became this sort of this movement that that happened and that now is is you can see in websites everywhere is that, you know, they didn't know how to actually execute and create that experience in that world online. But they were doing it in these little these little stores mm-hmm. and pulling together all of these interesting sort of, you know, creative visionaries that were making things, whether it was art or music or, or clothing or perfume or artisanal, you mm-hmm. know, pencils, you know, it was just, it was just really empowering and exciting because you just, you just knew that, you know, there were stars being born, right. you know, and, and I loved the idea of us creating a digital experience that um, was a, a reflection of that, that time, that entrepreneurial spirit, that, you know, that real conviction to, um, to create a platform for all of these unique voices. Right. It's important. It's important. Like that's 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 something that's really needed because most of the time you find people that are really talented and great at what they do, and they need somebody to kind of um, the same thing of what an editor does, right? Like you need somebody to like shape it or to kind of put it out there in the right way so it can reach as many people as it should, you know. Yeah. And that doesn't happen that often. And there was just a really beautiful time in those first two years where we were just testing a lot of stuff and we were starting to you know in a in you know in in a very um 
in a very um, accessible way, starting to scale the content and mm-hmm. starting to you know sell advertising, and it was just all new to everybody. So we were really learning um, as we went along, and there's just something so exhilarating about that that you're. I mean, I don't want it to sound too lofty, but no, you know, no. you're really pioneering this new industry, and I'm so proud of of Refinery29 having that, you know, playing that role in, in you know, almost 11 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Like, do you remember what the frustrating moments were when you're trying to grow the site or trying to get it going? I think the frustrating moments are really, like, very consistent uh, throughout my life when we've launched things. It's just convincing people. It's getting them to trust you. It's really selling them on the dream and and doing it in a way that is authentic and that is true and it's not just marketing and bullshit right and um and it was really um rewarding to see people um discovering the power of our of our content and our site for themselves you know seeing it drive sales or seeing it drive you know newsletter signups or yeah. traffic to their sites and you know or or followers on their social platforms and you know when we can show that value and they see it for themselves it's just really it's really um heartening yeah it's incredible um you know you, you mentioned before it's been going for almost 11 years like what how do you still keep that train running it's all about the people that you bring um, into the experience to to lead, and you know a big a big lesson and a big exercise in growing for me over the last year and a half has really been letting go mm-hmm. and allowing people that we trust to make really critical decisions about the future of the company. Um, you know, knowing where to insert myself and where to play um, a leading role and where to sort of you know step back and listen um and and be supportive and that's been really exciting and it's also been important for the company um and I just think finding it comes back to you know the thrill and the excitement of working with young writers emerging voices it's finding people that are really talented and have something incredibly important to offer and helping them to to realize that Mm -hmm. helping them to exercise it and feel really really good about what it is that they're they're making how much um i mean do you ever worry about expanding to the point where you're no longer able to hold on to your initial you know kind of goals and ideals i think that that's my job yeah. is to worry about that. And I do worry about it all the time. I don't know that anybody in my position that doesn't. I I am definitely skeptical sometimes about, you know, how far we can scale without um, losing our our losing our focus or losing that that really strong connection to our audience, their faith in us, their trust. Mm-hmm. Um but we're doing it, and I think it's. I think you have to constantly be pushing outside your comfort zone, beyond you know, beyond um, you know the initial scope that you set, because 
Otherwise, you don't know what's possible. And I think that I'm really, I'm really, I don't want to say lucky, but it is luck well, in a way that I work with people that care about that too. They really, really deeply care about the reputation of this brand mm-hmm. and and how it impacts people's lives and the role that it's going to play in you know the legacy of this industry. And it's and that makes me happy. And um, and I get frustrated sometimes. I sometimes you know don't get my way. And we have to do things sometimes that I don't you necessarily. You still don't throw physical tantrums like. <laughs> no, but I. Um, you know, we, we all have our moments. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, I try to like, you know, I try to, you know, conceal it or go and hide in, you know, a bathroom stall and Is that your version of going scream into scream the- into my into my throw pillow. Yeah. But um I'm going into the closet and reading a book. That's your version yeah, of that. Kinda Yeah, kind of stamp it out, yeah. you know. I, I, do, I do my thing. I've been known to smoke a cigarette from time to time. Oh yeah. Um but I think that that's part of growing a, a business in this time. It's very competitive. It's really, it's not a day goes by that we don't see somebody else um, emulating something that we're doing or challenging us in a certain aspect of our business. And um, and that's part of, that comes along with the territory. I think that for me, you know, it's, it's the most important thing for me is to, you know, give the smartest and the most talented and the most promising people on our team as much support and and freedom as I can and just be a good listener right. you know really making sure that I make time to to listen to them and to hear you know what it is that they're observing because I learn a lot from that and I think that I really do believe in this you know this theory of the inversion of influence it's like the people that work for you you know really end up being your greatest teachers in a lot of ways and um and I, I feel fortunate that we have such an awesome team that that keeps me keeps me honest. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> no, I get I'm having it. Having an Alec Baldwin moment right now. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, just, I'll ask two more questions. What what this is and this is a general question. One thing, what what do you wish that you would have known when you first started that you know now? Oh, that's a good one. Um, phrased differently than. What a lot of people ask me. Um, <laughs> everyone always asks me, like, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Yeah. Um, so what do I wish I would have known? Yeah, when you were starting. I wish I would have known that it takes longer than you think it's going to. And even that it's longer than the long, the long sort of anticipation of what you think it's going to be. I think, I think that this culture leads us to believe that success happens really, really quickly. And if it doesn't happen quickly, it's not going to happen at all. And there is, there was a great, great, great story um, in the New Yorker many years ago about late bloomers. I think actually Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote it, Mm. but, and it was all about, he profiled these two writers um, that really, um, found success over a long, long period of time and, you know, what that experience was like. And I just think that I wish that somebody at that time would have told me that it was going to be okay if by the time I was 30, I wasn't already an editor-in-chief. I didn't already have, you know, something published in the New York Times and I wasn't already married. I didn't already have, you know, I wasn't already contemplating my first child. And I just think that we 
create, especially for women, we create these very unrealistic expectations and standards that become impossible to live up to. And, and we can be unkind to ourselves and to, and to our peers. And I just, I wish that I had had somebody kind of reassure me that it might take a little bit longer and it doesn't matter. And it doesn't mean that you're, that you're any less capable or, or that it's, it's any less likely to happen. But, but I think that I just think that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be somewhere really fast and um, and with a certain sort of fanfare that doesn't always come to fruition. But I think if you really believe in your heart and your gut that this is, you know, your destiny, you have to just stick with it and know that it's it's going to unfold, it's going to play out, just maybe not on your timeline. It's, it's another thing, too, that, you know, I think about my friends who who have been in, like, successful bands, and I think about all the years, like 10 years that they spent just playing around the country, around the world, just really tiny venues. You know, your first show in town, like eight people come to your show. The next time you come to town, like 50 people come to your show, like that kind of like work ethic where you also like really kind of develop into who you are and you become a confident performer. So when the, when everybody else finally catches up and starts paying attention to you, you're already built like such a strong foundation that you're ready for everything that comes after that rather than there's a lot of people i think when success comes to them a little too quickly they don't have the tools to to be the best versions of themselves or to exceed and excel at whatever you know lane they're in you know that makes me feel a lot better (laughs) (laughs) thanks jay yeah no i mean i've seen our work is done (laughs) done here well what do you want to do next where do you see it go? Where do you see everything going for you? Well, we're expanding globally at Refinery29. So I think um, identifying what versions of our brand are going to work in new markets with new audiences is really exciting. Um, you know, a kind of customizing the, the storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, the categories, the voices, you know, to those markets, I think is going to be a really, really important exercise and challenge for us as a company and scaling internationally. Um, personally, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about it now. I think that the company is in such a, a fever pitch in terms of growth and, and opportunities. It's, it's hard to it's hard to detach myself from that and really think about like any personal pursuits. Mm-hmm. Um, but writing is, I'm coming back to writing just, um, I write probably four or maybe five stories a year for a finery. Now I used to write every story for a finery. <laughs> um, but just this past year I wrote a, I wrote a, an essay that I had originally written for myself about, um, my multiple miscarriages. I read that. Oh, thank read you. That. It's really intense. Thanks. Uh, just, I guess, intense and just like kind of the rawness and the honesty in it. Yeah, I, I wrote it for myself and, and just to kind of um, grieve and, and also make some sense of it. And then I, I decided to share it with um, our wellness director at the time, Kelly Bourdais, and Neha Gandhi, who's, who's really like my confidant for all things editorial. And, um, and they both agreed that I should publish it and... And I was really worried. I was, I actually sort of fell into that very, um, that very sort of 
judge self-judgmental place, you know, where I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. And I didn't, I, I don't know. I just, I was worried that, um, it was going to seem self-involved or, you know, I don't, I don't know. I was worried about what the, but I think that what I'm most proud of with that story is that it found an audience and that there were so many people that I got, must've gotten 300 emails and letters about that story, about people that just felt so alone, um, in their, in their loss and their struggle. And a lot of men wrote to me too, which was really, really amazing. And, um, and that just reminded me of the power of, of, you know, of, of being honest, personal sharing personal stories and um and doing it for the right reasons I think at least for me those were the right reasons and um and that was a really um it was a big growing growth experience for me I felt like it kind of reconnected me with my own voice and and the fact that I I can still write Mm because I don't do it very I don't do it so frequently anymore um so that was uh so I think maybe um more of that um but obviously when it counts. Right. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great place to end it. Christine Barberich. Signing off. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jay.